0: Hi, I'm Mark Inilski. I'm the author of The Economics of Happiness and my new book, An Economy of Well Being. Welcome to my Economy of Well Being podcast. I believe the most important aspiration in life is well being and genuine happiness. But by happiness, I mean the original Greek definition, which literally means well being of your soul or well being of spirit. I also believe we have an opportunity to change the consciousness of our world by rediscovering the true meaning of words like wealth, which literally comes from the Old English, meaning the conditions of well-being. In my podcast, I am joined by some amazing guests and elders to talk about the development of a new economy based on well-being. I wrote about these ideas in my first book, The Economics of Happiness, and in my new book, An Economy of Well-Being, which explores stories and examples of how the new economy of well-being is emerging in our world. In these podcasts, you'll learn what you can do in your personal life, your business, and in your community to incorporate well-being into all decisions. I hope you enjoy these podcasts and feel more hopeful about the future. You can learn more about my book, An Economy of Well-Being, and my previous book, The Economics of Happiness, on my website, economyofwellbeing.com. That's economyofwellbeing.com. You can purchase my book on Amazon or from your favorite bookstore. I hope you have a wonderful life and day. The following address was by Dr. John Cobb, Jr., the preeminent process theologian from Claremont School of Theology in Claremont, California. Uh, This address was given at the 2019 Ecological Civilization Conference in Seoul, Korea which I also attended. Uh, Dr. Cobb presented his ideas on a Whiteheadian and ecological civilization. Alfred North Whitehead was the founder of Process Theology and John Cobb is the preeminent again scholar on Whitehead and here he presents his ideas about an ecological civilization something he's been inspiring China to do and adopt and also inspiring now and encouraging Korea to embrace this notion of ecological civilization. The purpose of this uh, important conference in Seoul in October of 2019, October 1st uh, to the 3rd uh, was that Korea and like other nations faces the need for a great transition. This includes a transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy to reduce the effects of climate change and fine dust from a conglomerate-centered economy to a local social economy from selective welfare to universal welfare for those young people facing structural unemployment and the older members of our aging society from the current competition-based education system to an ecological education encouraging creativity and cooperation from private commercial culture to a spiritual community culture which embraces new technologies and digitalization and from an antagonistic confrontation to peaceful coexistence between South and North Korea. All these transitions cannot be achieved individually. They are all related and a change in one accelerates the change in the other. This great transition from the industrial civilization to the ecological civilization has already begun. In the industrial civilization, Humans subjugated the earth, considered nature and all lives to be natural resources for production. Economic benefit was prioritized over all other values, and education was commodified. On the other hand, ecological civilization implies reverence for the earth, the respect for all life, a sustainable economy which does not exceed our natural capacity, a consideration of the principle of endless economic growth and the pursuit of true happiness. Indeed, in 2012, the Chinese Communist Party explicitly emphasized the importance of an ecological civilization in their party constitution, and the progressive wing of the U.S. Democratic Party suggested a Green New Deal in early 2019. These calls illustrate the recognition of the need for change at the national level. The purpose of the ecological civilization in Korea conference is to promote lively communication between researchers and activists in order to enhance the transition movement in Korea and abroad. Each sector of the movement tries to do its best to take society in a new direction, but specialization and a disciplinary approach often prevents mutual communication, cooperation and understanding. As a result, the prospect for transition and hopes for change are diminished. Among the hopes and goals of the organizers of this conference are that scholars and environmental activists will meet and share ideas together, and that economists will discuss the local economy with residents, running cooperatives and developing the areas where they live. This is the third international conference on ecological civilization following the 2017 Transition Toward Ecological Civilization, a Korea-U.S. dialogue that was held in Claremont, California and the 2018 ecological transformation on the Korean Peninsula and East Asia and Paju, Korea. This year's conference in 2019 it focuses on networking between the organizations related to the ecological civilization movement in Korea. Among them, the Seoul Metropolitan Office of Education is included, which means He Yeon Cho, the superintendent, will be actively involved in the debate over educational transition in Seoul. Nubong District Office in Seoul and the Northeast Region MPO Support Center will also play an important role in this conference. I hope you enjoy this opening keynote speech by Dr. John Cobb, Jr., Emeritus Professor, Claremont University School of Theology, and Wenxing Yang, Emeritus Professor of Methodist Theological University. The title of this dialogue is called Whitehead and the Ecological Civilization. It was recorded by Mark Anielski, who also attended the conference and presented his paper on well-being indices An approach to well-being-based governance for Korea and the world.
1: The fact that no one believes it does not make it unimportant because policies work out from our official beliefs to at least as great an extent as from our actual beliefs. So Western civilization and Western thinking have never been very sensible. They've always been crazy. Always been split, and it's sad to me that the rest of the world has been sucked into the orbit of this incredible idea, these incredible ideas. And within the West itself, we've had repeated protests. So, when you study actual Western history of thought, you find a lot of other things besides this basic view. The romantics had a wonderful attitude toward the natural world. I think that the most important next step, however, was not the romantic movement, which still left the mechanistic view in charge and dominating everything. It was the rejection of dualism. Descartes thought that, of course, if we are talking about the scientist and not about the nature the scientist is studying, we have an entirely different method. None of the principles of mechanism were applied to the scholar who was studying nature or to any other human being. Descartes had a sense that the human soul was not part of nature at all. The human soul belonged to an entirely different sphere. And in that sphere, you can talk about human responsibility, human purposes, human morality, all of these traditional topics were still possible. So the church went along with this to a large extent because the soul was still topic of its consideration. And I'm afraid that the Christianity of the West largely operated out of the same assumptions that the science operated so far as nature nature was concerned. But what did this mean if we find out that we are evolved, our souls as much as anything else is evolved out of the natural processes that Descartes has described? Well, there were two possible responses. We now cannot say there's nature and there's the human. Nature excludes the human. One answer, one possibility is to say, if we human beings are part of nature, then nature is not what we have been called describing it as. We know that we have subjective experiences, we have purposes, we have feelings, We make decisions, all kinds of things. If we're part of nature, then nature has feelings, purposes, goals, meanings, values. To me, that would have been a sensible response. (laughs) Unfortunately, our universities, I'll take our universities as the the way that the other thinking has advanced, but of course this spills over into business and politics and everything else. Our universities, after a brief period in which there was serious discussion of these options, decided that if human beings are part of nature, then human beings are zombies. A zombie is a a human-looking action it's like the figures that came out of the Strasbourg clock. So if we understood that those figures were mechanical, we have to understand we are mechanical. And the official teaching of our universities is that our experience, our feelings, our purposes play no role in determining what happens in the world. Mm -hmm. We all know it's not true, you understand? It's just carrying this craziness of teaching, trying to socialize people into thinking what is false, and that everybody knows it's false. You know you're not a zombie, don't you? I hope there's nobody here who thinks they're zombies. But if your job is to teach neuroscience, your job is to show that we are zombies. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, I, I just get, I'm so exasperated by the <laughs> craziness of our universities. It just should be set as deep reflection about these matters. Mm-hmm. but by adopting a system which has grown out of this same worldview, the system of academic disciplines in which we slice up all the vast quantity of knowledge into many little pieces. We do not teach students for anything that's good for students. We teach them how to do research to increase the information that we have about a narrow topic. And the information that we get about a narrow topic by studying it that way is not really accurate or adequate information, even about that narrow topic. But our whole university is organized now around academic disciplines they have displaced the liberal arts, and they have displaced intellectual activity. So during my lifetime, higher education, which had some promise still when I was younger, has gone over to the Cartesian side and is teaching us what is not true. Now, what I'm trying to say in all of this is, it does matter, philosophy matters, it is, a bad philosophy that is shaping our educational system. It is a bad philosophy that is shaping our economic system. It is a bad philosophy that is shaping our, even our responses to the crisis of our time. So I think it's very important to become fully conscious and aware of the assumptions if you have a PhD, you have been socialized into a guild, the assumptions of which you do not examine. It's essential to the university that you not examine its assumptions, because if you did, you wouldn't continue as a student. <laughs> but I think as the crisis grows worse, and as people do realize that they are being, they are acting, they are promoting things in terms of beliefs they don't really, they're not really convinced of. That we may have a, a wonderful transformation and people will become free, teachers will become free to teach. There's a book in the United States in which a educational theorist and scholar writes to his colleagues and says, Save the world on your own time. What his point <laughs> is, you are hired to teach an academic discipline. The academic discipline is irrelevant to what happens. It is value-free. That's wonderful. Isn't it? The greatest schools, the better you are in an educational system, the less you care about what the results are outside of simply gaining information. I'm, I'm glad he had to write the book because it means lots of professors really wanted to help the people in the world. They really wanted to make a positive impact. So they had to be told no, no, that's not your job. It's crazy. We should not allow this insanity to drive us over the precipice into destruction. Now, I think that the group of people who responded in the other way. What I regard is a sensible way, if I am part of nature, nature is not simply a machine. I feel, I, I have purposes, I care about things, I have values. That's all part of nature. It's not part of something different from nature. And if I understand that, then I need to understand the whole of nature in a different way. I think Bergson was the, the most influential voice at the time. I believe that whiteheads can include most of what Bergson had to teach. I don't mean stop reading Bergson, I just mean systematically. There's not a great deal in Bergson that cannot be brought into the Whiteheadian. Bergson was a biologist, William James was a psychologist, John Dewey, who more or less belongs to this family, was a psychologist and educator. But if we really want to challenge the basic thinking out of which or into which we socialize our children through the educational system, it helps to go at what that system was founded on. That system was founded on its physics. Whitehead was the one great physicist, mathematical physicist, who saw that physics itself was leading to a different mode of thought. Mm. The, the, The evidence that is being brought to light by people who think mechanistically is that the mechanistic way of thinking does not explain the phenomena that science deals with. If the evidence doesn't support the mechanistic view, if the mechanistic view is destroying this, isn't it time to give serious thought to philosophy and see if there is a <laughs> philosophy that can explain the world as composed of organisms rather than mechanisms? I'm not by enemies alone in thinking this. You don't have to read Whitehead in order to think this. There are many, many people who are convinced that the mechanistic, substantive, materialistic model of the individual, which is totally irrelevant to what quantum physicists are finding out about the basic elements of the world, should be given up rather than applied to animals in order to produce our food. Take the example, two different directions to go. So I, my, my, my primary commitment here is to overcome the dominant philosophy. Even people who we can cooperate with on many, many topics, people who work with us on some features of ecological civilization have a, a limited, Role as long as they leave intact the, the model. Uh, the, the, it's the basic philosophical model that also has to be changed. So I am very much concerned that some of us not be so immersed in the practical and immediate actions that we can keep alive the critique of the assumptions that are leading to all of these problems that mm-hmm. we all face together. And I will say one more word about Whitehead. He was a remarkably creative and open-minded person who had whose common sense and wisdom were directly related to his very rigorous analysis and description. I think philosophers who deal in as holistic a manner as Whitehead does with a holistic problem have been very rare in the whole of history. I think he was wrong about some things. I hope you don't think because I'm holding him up as the best that we have that I say, we we should agree with everything that he wrote. No, that would be foolish. Whitehead would never want you to do that if the evidence on any point goes in a different direction, correct it. The the problem with contemporary science is it ignores so much evidence. Uh, It's it's very frustrating to me that scientists who claim to be open-mindedly ready to deal with the evidence, have decided to deal with a huge body of science, that is the whole quantum, branch of science and say we dismiss that from relevance to anything else in science by just saying, well, that's queer exception. That's not science. That's metaphysics gone wild. (laughs) And uh, I, I think there is no better way to challenge this bad metaphysics that is destroying us all than by lifting up the thinking of Whitehead. He can can defend himself or he can be defended on question after question that goes farther than any of the other creative and wise thinkers of the same period. So I I do think it's important that we not just talk about an organic philosophy but we talk about an organic philosophy that has already dealt with most of the issues that come up in order to make the philosophical change. So, on the one hand, please, let's all work together to deal with the terrible crises we face. All work together about our shared ideals on many, many other topics. If we had to wait until we could convert everybody to the philosophy we'd all be dead. So please don't hear me. <laughs> but please also recognize that all of us have a basic worldview. And if we, un- if we know that we have been indoctrinated into a worldview that is sadly mistaken about many of its fundamental assumptions, we- it may release us to think more clearly be more open to the evidence, and also to work together to rethink education. Any of you who are professors, if I could persuade you to ask the questions about the assumptions of the guild that you belong to, it could be a beginning of a kind of transformation. Where the graduate, where a person had a PhD would have some wisdom. We need wisdom today, not just more information.
2: Thank you. 네. 이렇게 무대 밑에서 First it. We this, move the
0: stage. Following Dr. Cobb's address, a question and answer period was held. Here are some of the responses to the questions presented to Dr. Cobb. The Korean questions were edited out, but Dr. Cobb's responses are uh, kept in their entirety.
1: You would be better off. So, however, we have not followed Buddhist teaching or Taoist teaching. And we may blame the Abrahamic traditions for having created attitudes toward history and toward progress and toward the idea that human beings are intended to reshape the earth and things of that kind that have led us to our present problems. Uh, I think, however, that this does not mean that we should now become Taoists or become Buddhist. I'm not trying to get you not to be one, I just mean I don't think that's the solution to the the problem. I I will try philosophically to indicate what I see as the difference between Whitehead's model and uh, the Buddhist model, which I think is similar to the Taoist in fundamental ways. Whitehead agrees with uh, Buddhists, with many Buddhists at least, that the world is made up of events and that each event is an instance of everything that has ever happened coming together now in a new entity. The many become one. Pratitya is, and Whitehead's doctrine of creativity are very similar. However, in Whitehead, the, the many become one and are increased by one and exactly how this increase takes part is a decision of the one. So there is a thematic locus or emphasis on decision that I don't find in Buddhism or in Taoism. And I think today we need that decision. Making, We need to highlight it. We, we need to make deep decisions about radical changes. And uh, so I, I, I think these are very close to each other, that quite as is, metaphysics is much more like Buddhist metaphysics than it is like metaphysics in the past in the West. So this is not a radical difference, but I I would encourage, and, and there are many Buddhists today. For example, many Buddhists have organized for social responsibility on a global basis. I think Buddhism, when it organizes for social responsibility, becomes very much what Whitehead would recommend. And that may be an easier, move than a move from traditional Abrahamic thinking to a an understanding that everything is related to everything else, that we are all products of our total community. That may be harder for Westerners. So it's a complicated question. I hope that gives some – and now would you repeat, you can do it in English just for me. One of the other questions. Oh, the first one. Yeah. Yeah. The first
2: one was about deep ecologists. Deep ecologists, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Of course, it's, it's a really complicated question, and just so you just yeah. uh, can give us a short answer, okay? Yeah, I,
1: th- I think I, I remember now. Uh, yes, among ecologists there are some who would say that everything is of equal value if human beings are part of nature that human beings are just natural entities and the mosquito is also a natural entity and an elephant is a natural entity and all have value, but there is no way of saying some are more valuable than others. Well, I think that is also asking us to believe something none of us believe. (laughs) Uh, I don't think any of us believe that, when a malarious mosquito is threatening our lives, we should be very reverent and say, oh, well, I must not bother the mosquito because the mosquito is just as valuable as I am. Uh, to, To me, it's once again getting an idea that has a certain logic or seems to have a certain logic and then promoting it against common sense. Uh, I, I think that every entity has value, but complex entities like a moment of human experience have a much greater value. They are much richer than the experience of the malarial mosquito, and certainly of that quantum entity. So, why uh, did does not find any conflict between saying everything has value but exactly how much value it has is to be empirically determined in so far as we can. And uh, so he would not be a deep ecologist. would think that deep ecology, like so many theories, actually discourage any kind of an action that might benefit the world. If everything is of equal value, really there's no basis for making any serious judgments about our policy.
2: So I'm i not very sympathetic with deep ecology. 시간이 oh, 지금 you will yeah, gonna open the question. Uh, oh, I thought that was the third question. Third, it was composed of three questions, but just I skipped a uh, second oh, question. Okay. okay, all right. 질문이 있으시면 여러분들이 지금 여러분들에게 질문할 수 있는 기회를 주시는 게 드리는 게 좋을 것 같아서 질문을 하셔도 좋겠습니다. 뭐, 오늘 약간 철학적인 토론이 있었기 때문에 그거에 대해서 여러분들이 혹시 이해를 더 하시고 싶은 그런 질문이 있으셔서 하셔도 좋고요. 아니면 그냥 생태, 문명 전반에 대한 질문을 하셔도 좋고요. 그렇게 없었어요. 가치 개념을 얘기하셨잖아요. 근데 그 가치가 주어지는 건가, 것일까? the value is given or becoming or it is, uh, uh, arising? Oh, right.
0: Created or given?
1: I think that if we just reflect about a moment of experience in which you are having a deep mutual understanding with a friend, you know, as that is happening, that it's a good thing, a very good thing. And if instead someone is torturing you, you know that's a very bad thing. The experience itself has value for, the, for itself. So we're talking about the intrinsic value, the value that is simply there. And what the value is of an elephant's experience under certain circumstances, uh, it is what it is. And of course, there's a lot of guesswork. My opinion is that elephants have rather rich experiences but nothing like as rich as a human. But it's not a matter of my having a a set of standards by which I judge. If you enjoy being tortured, then torture is a good experience for you, but I doubt that. We make practical judgments, And our practical judgment is that other people probably have rich, positive experiences (coughs) under circumstances similar to the ones in which I have rich, positive experiences. But on the other hand, when I see a child thrilled by being moved around in an amusement park in a way that would make me sick, I don't judge that because it would make me sick, it's going to make the child sick. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think it's it's desirable to try to work out a, theoretical, generalized system, I think we can say that uh, in general, the more of the past, the more of our relations to others play a role in our experience, the richer, the more valuable that experience is. But on the other hand, sometimes people need just to rest and let it all go, That's the most valuable experience. Mm. So I think we all have some judgments about what is better and what is worse, and what is intensely better and what is mildly better. And we can just use our common sense to say, I want to help other people have the kinds of experiences that I find so valuable myself. Mm.
0: China will be, the future of China will be by the way of the Tao. or it will not. Can you reflect on what you're seeing in China with respect to, of course, the Confucian philosophy underlying its governance structure, its culture, how you see Taoism playing potentially a role in informing our future civilization? Dominant political
1: determinants of action Come from uh, from uh, Marxism, which is obviously a product of the Abrahamic traditions, uh, and very strongly focused upon action and decision and all of that kind of thing. My sense is that when Chinese talk about Marxism with Chinese characteristics they are uh, moving in the direction of the book that Philip Clayton wrote, Uh, Chinese characteristics are much more organic than mechanical. And uh, so if you take something from the West and modify it into more Chinese, it's going to lose the harsh edge of the mechanical. Mm -hmm. I think in China one can see tensions between these, but I'm impressed more by the extent to which they have been integrated. And at least there's more chance for an integration of the best of the East and the West in the East than there is in the West. And you asked me about China, so I'll say in China. Mm. And, China has been open to Whitehead in a way no other country has. And I don't think that's an accident. Mm -hmm. I I think there's a hunger in China to somehow overcome the Eastern soul and the Western soul. And I think think people can find that in in Whitehead uh, almost uniquely. So I, I really have a great deal of hope for the promise of China. And I do so as a Christian theologian. Uh, I, I think that China had many reasons for looking elsewhere. The Christianity that was there was obviously bourgeois. And though no, I, I think we, we should dismiss it Some of the missionaries had been good, social gospel missionaries. I think, um, uh, oh, I'm trying to think of the name of the leader leader of the Three Self Movement. Uh, I think Christianity had a a chance. Yeah, thank you. I mean, the Marxists actually respected him. And so it's it's not that they wiped them out. Ideally, I wish that their experience with Christianity had been such that becoming Marxist would not have required them to give up being Christian, but it wasn't. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And uh, I find that there is a great deal of interest in spirituality. Uh, as a theologian, uh, I am. Accepted and respected in Chinese universities, much more than in an American university, where being a theologian is the kiss of death. I'm sure you. So, uh, I'm not sure all of that is relevant to your question, but it suggests. I, I have, I I don't know the Korean situation well enough. I'm afraid the Westernization may have gone farther here. Mm but uh, we're going to a conference sponsored by one of the new religions and I make no pre-judgment, but my guess is some judicious decisions are being made about East and West in a new religion. Well, I'm not sure that what I will say is a direct answer. Uh, I think we want to talk that the terminology we usually use in relationship to eco civilization is postmodern. And postmodern means you're building on the modern. And I don't want to give the impression that to be postmodern is to abandon industri- industrial civilization. I think we need industry. But what has happened in modernity is that. Political life, cultural life, educational life have all come into the service of the industrial economic life. And that is, I I think we can see that the initial move to removing all value from nature, and finally even from human beings, makes quantity the only thing. there's no question one can produce far more quantitatively with factories and automating factories and on and on in that direction. But if, we, if industry is really thought of from the beginning as a means of helping people, if it relieves people of the most arduous and difficult work and provides them with more goods then we certainly should not be against the industry. So, uh, yes, it is certainly true that if by ecological you are always referring to the relationship between human beings and nature, from my point of view, human beings are part of the ecology and their relationships with each other are a very important part of the ecology that we're talking about. So I don't like the the way in which many people hear the word and then think, oh, you're just talking about how human beings are related to nature. That's, for me, no longer an ecological uh, civilization. But yes, the, the indigenous people have great wisdom about how to relate to nature. They did not learn how to produce goods, as many goods as they needed. Most of them are very glad to receive more of the sum of the benefits of the subsequent society. I was mm-hmm. ex- uh, deeply moved. We, we came came here from Pu'er and uh, well, oh my goodness, uh, Yunnan, Yunnan yeah, province course, is what I was course, trying too. to say, yeah. and yeah. that is the most ethnically diverse province of China. And I was very interested in trying at every point to see what problems they were having in the process of modernization uh, and the ethnic minorities. They had done it very, very well. Uh, Night before last, I was seated beside the mayor of the largest Kunmin city. And we were talking about this issue And then it just came up, he was from an ethnic minority. They really have been able to assimilate without losing something of the culture. I think the problem may be that the new culture that is emerging is too modern and not not using the witness of the indigenous people sufficiently to modify modernity. Yes, we, we certainly prize the uh, I- indigenous wisdom, but we don't go back to it. We need to appropriate it in a way that is beneficial, both to the indigenous people and to the modern people. Mm-hmm.